Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music today. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream this morning. We're turning to a new passage, and that is Romans chapter 8, as we will be in this chapter uh, from now to Christmas, about eight uh, messages. So I hope that you'll be able to join us as we go through this chapter. We're in the first four verses today, and this is a subject about the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, the, Holy, the subject of the Holy Spirit is often neglected, but that's right to do, because in John 16, when Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come, he also said, he will not speak of himself, but he'll glorify me. And so it's been the Holy Spirit's ministry, not only to give us the Word of God, but in so doing to highlight the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is all throughout the Scripture too, isn't it? And so he does write of himself, and we should learn from that. As a matter of fact, in the opening verses of Genesis, as soon as the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, it says that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters and uh, protecting, you might say. And in the last, very last chapter of the book of Revelation, it's the Holy Spirit that says, if you're thirsty, come. If you want to take of the water of life, come. And so we see throughout. And it's the Holy Spirit that said to Mary, that, uh, or the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will uh, be the one who bears the Son of God. And so the, the Holy Spirit's ministry throughout is very important also. In the book of Romans, Here's an interesting uh, uh, trivia, I guess you would say. In, in chapters 1 through 7, leading up to this chapter, the Holy Spirit is mentioned five times. Then from chapter 9 to the end of the book, chapter 16, the Holy Spirit is mentioned eight times. But in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 21 times. As someone said, uh, the book of Romans uh, is, the, is the crown of, uh, of the New Testament, and chapter 8 is the jewel on top of the crown, and this is where the Holy Spirit is. Let me remind you a few things about the Holy Spirit. I think at least in this first message, you ought to remember uh, these things. Number one, the Holy Spirit is God. He's called God in Acts 5.3. Ananias, uh, or Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. He specifically calls the Holy Spirit God. He has the attributes of God. Uh, when Philip was done preaching, it says the Spirit caught Philip away. That miraculous power that the Holy Spirit has. He exists with God and is often named with the other members of the Godhead. Hebrews 9.14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. And he's the eternal spirit, as God the Father, of course, is eternal. Not only that, he's a person, not just a thing or an it. So in Genesis 1, again, you see him creating. Uh, in Ephesians 4, it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. How can you grieve someone who's not a person? You can't grieve an it. He always uh, has actions as a person. He anoints us and he teaches us, 1 John 2, 27. He's addressed as Trinity. Here's another one of those verses. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Not only that, but he's actively involved in the world 
So there he was in Genesis 1, hovering over the face of the waters. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, he's the restrainer of the evil in the world. Uh, and, and he restrains until he's taken out of the way. And in John 3, 6, he regenerates. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then, of course, he's inspiring the very Word of God that we're reading. 2 Peter 1.21, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit we find throughout, and there's a lot to be said about him, uh, one way to go about this study of the Holy Spirit would have been topically, and that, that would have been fine to go through the various topics of all that he does or all that he is. But I think going through Romans 8 uh, will do just fine also. In the first three chapters of Romans, we conclude that all have sinned, and we find ourselves sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Then in chapters 3 through 5, we find that we are justified by faith, and uh, justification is ours through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then in 6 and 7 is our sanctification, the fact that we, once we are saved, once we are justified, we can walk with God. And so it's in chapter 8 that we have that assurance and that know-how, how to walk in the Spirit and walk with God. There's a verse in 1 Thessalonians 1.4 that I think of often. As Paul wrote to that church, he said this, Our gospel came not to you in word only, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. I think often that we give out the word of God, but we do it in word only. It's a, it's a fear for every preacher uh, it ought to be for every teacher, everyone who witnesses in the name of Christ, to just speak the Word of God, but it only comes out as our words. There's no power behind it. And Paul said, no, I, when I came to you, I didn't come just with words. I came with power and the Holy Spirit and, in, and for your assurance and much assurance. As a matter of fact, he said, you know that by what manner of men we were among you. It's the, type of, it's the way we live that brings the power of the word as we speak it. But not only does the speaker have that responsibility, the hearer does too. So as you sit and hear the word of God, you have a responsibility uh, to say, am I receiving the word as God's word or just by a bunch of words? Do I hear someone teaching the word of God and I read it and to me it's just words? Or do we really receive it as the word of God? And if you do, Paul goes on to say, you became followers then of us with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's what will bring joy and power and assurance to you. So the speaker has responsibility and so does the hearer. So I say that to say, let's do this together. Let's go through this chapter and read the Word of God. And whether we're the speaker or the hearer, uh, let's see that we do it in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Now, you have on your bulletin or on the left side of the screen, if you're watching, uh, this outline that I give you four thoughts in the first four verses, if you will, about the uh, Holy Spirit. There is the fact of life in verse 1, the law of life in verse 2, the victory of life, verse 3, and the requirement of life. I think that you'll see what I mean as we go through these. Verse 1, again, 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice I say there is no condemnation. What does it mean to be condemned? It means that you're guilty. It means that your sentencing has been made. It means that your punishment is at hand. You are condemned. Go back up into chapter 7, just a few verses to verse 23. Paul says, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Then he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? I'm condemned in my sin. Who can deliver me from this? And what is the next statement? Thank God, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, exclamation point. And in, and in our verse, in verse 1, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I've told you this before, but in the language that Paul is writing in, uh, they had a little grammatical tool that they used called the emphatic position. If they wanted to emphasize one word in the, in the sentence, they could put it as the first word in the sentence. Now, English, we can't really do that because we rely on, on word order so much that if we change the word order, it doesn't make sense to us. But they didn't have to do that. And you know what the first word in this sentence is? It's the word no, N-O, uden in, in Greek, which means nothing, none, no. And so the verse actually reads, no, there is now condemnation. There is none. Did you ever, did you ever uh, hear someone talking and you blurt it out right away? No. <laughs> That's kind of the way Paul feels. Is there condemnation? No, there is not. If you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, verse 25 says, I thank God. Don't you thank God for that? that he can stop and say, no, you are not condemned. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? There's only one answer, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is it that can save you? Who is it that can take you out of death row and take away the condemnation? Only one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, we are going to say, by the way, you see at the end of verse 3, it's not you who are condemned if you're in Christ. It's sin that is condemned. He condemns sin rather than us. What a great picture that is. We'll come to that in a minute. Now, notice verse 1 says, there's no condemnation, of course, in Christ Jesus. Uh, you remember 623 at the end of that chapter, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what I think? I think the Holy Spirit is being very modest here. The Holy Spirit is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ as is his ministry to do. But regeneration didn't come to you without the work of the Holy Spirit either. You might remember that regeneration or the new birth comes not by water, but by water and spirit in John chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, Paul says the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so you are saved not just by what Jesus did, but also by what the Holy Spirit operated inside you. And not only that, you are in Christ Jesus, not only by regeneration, but, but by Holy Spirit baptism. By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit then at that moment 
placed you into the body of Christ. Not only that, at that moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit came in and lives inside you. He dwells in you. Look at verse 11 of our chapter. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He comes and dwells in you. And then we have here, uh, He will be the power of your resurrection also. So I think the Holy Spirit is being a little modest, and yet uh, He's glorifying what Jesus Christ has done for us. The fact of life is this, and, and Christian... He's writing chapter 8 to you. He wrote to you as a sinner in chapters 1 through 3. He told you how to be justified in, in chapters 4, 5, and then sanctified in, in chapter 6. Now he's saying to you who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. What a great blessing that is. That's the fact of life for the believer. Let me go to the second verse. The, there is a law of life. The law of the life, or the spirit of life, in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, of course, the law of life, as I call it here, contains two laws, right? They're called here the law of the spirit and the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit is what? The law of the spirit is New Testament grace. The grace of God that says whosoever will may come. That's why you could come to the Lord Jesus as, as your Savior. But the law of sin and death is Old Testament law. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. I want you to turn back to chapter 3 for a minute of this book. And let me read how Paul did this earlier in the book. Beginning in verse 19 of chapter 3 in Romans. He says it like this. Now, first of all, by the way, 3 through uh, 20, he's talking about this law of sin and death. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, notice the emphasis on that word law, that every mouth may be stopped. All the world may become guilty before God, condemned. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know what the law did? It condemned you. It showed that you were a sinner, and you would be condemned, except for verses 21 to 24. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Did you believe? Did you receive Christ as your Savior? Then the law is done, is apart from you, and the righteousness of God comes to you. There's no difference, whoever calls. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But being justified, notice these three words, being justified freely by His grace through redemption, that is what? In Christ Jesus. Justification, the grace of God, redemption, all are yours through the Lord Jesus Christ. You couldn't do it yourself. The law of sin and death left you in a place of condemnation. But the, the grace of God came and lifted you out of it. Did you ever see this? I, I've seen this often. You ever see a little child, uh, not very tall, a little short toddler maybe, 
and he or she's standing there reaching up because he wants something higher up than he is, and he can't reach it. And his arms are straight up, and, and he's waiting, but uh, there's a law that keeps him from getting it, and that's the law of gravity. It pulls him down. It anchors him to the earth. He can't get it, and he has no power in himself to get that up there. And about the time he's sitting there with his arms up and it's an impossibility, larger hands come and put the hands around him and he is lifted up, uh, defying the laws of gravity. He gets what is want and he's set back down. That's what grace did for us. We couldn't do it. We can't lift ourselves out of the condemnation. We, we can't defy the law of sin and death. And yet larger hands than ours had come by his grace and lifted us up, defying that law of gravity. Now notice then also that there's another statement in our verse, in verse 2, and that is where uh, he says, uh, the, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. I like Paul's personal reference there. I have it written down there. You, speaking to the believer, you are free. And Paul says, he made me free. I'm set free. He rejoices in this. And grace saved him, and grace can save you in the same way. Free from the law of sin and death. And I know what you're thinking. I don't think I'm free. I still sin. What's wrong with me that he has set me free from the law of sin and death, and yet I still sin? This was dealt with in, in chapter 6 when he said, you are free from sin also. Well, let me go back to my, to my illustration of, of gravity, if you will. The law of sin is in you because you're a child of Adam, and it will be in you until resurrection day. Until the day that your body is done and it's put back in the ground and one day it will be raised also, you, are, uh, you, you still live with this law of sin and death. You live with the law of gravity. You, you are pulled down to this earth. And that will be after you. It is in you. We call it the old nature that is still in you from Adam. It's going to pull on you and tug on you and keep you grounded if it can. But there's another law that God put into this world, even with the law of gravity, and I call it the law of flight. How can the bird do that? How can the bees do that? How can the bugs do that? How, how can they defy the law of gravity? Because God made them to fly. God gave them the power to, though gravity is there, and when they stop flapping their wings or whatever they do, uh, they'll have to sit somewhere uh, but they can defy that. And what God has done for you and me is given us the law also of flight. Now, if you don't exercise it, you'll be attracted by the law of sin and death, and you'll be sitting down there on the earth and uh, uh, following the, uh, the flesh itself. But if you will take what God has given you, you can fly, and you can defy the law of gravity. You can mount up with wings as an eagle, as Isaiah said. And when you die, as Moses said, you can fly away. You can defy these laws. So you have the fact of life that we're not condemned. You have the law of life pulling you one way, and yet you have the ability, you have the freedom to defy that law and fly. 
if you will, above it with the law of the Spirit. So let me go to the third verse, and I call this the victory of life, if you will. And so he says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. My first thought is about that weak law. The law was weak. I want to show you something else, and it's in chapter 7. Uh, it's probably not too far away across the page there in chapter 7 of Romans, and uh, down to verse 7. I want, I want us to see why the law was weak, what the law could not do. He says in verse 7 of chapter 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. The law is not what was sin. On the contrary, he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. He gives the example. I had not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, what's Paul saying? I was fine. I was a covetous man. That was my besetting sin. I coveted this. I coveted that. I wanted to rise to, to great heights, and I would step on anybody I needed to to get there. I had that covetousness in my heart, and I was fine until the law came along and said, don't do that. The law came along, and man, it made me mad, told me I, sh I can't covet. I like covetousness. I want to covet. And here's the sinner, you know, he's in the, the lust of his flesh. And he's just fine. He likes the lust of his flesh. And God comes along and says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You will not uh, lust in your flesh. And he says, who are you to tell me not to lust? I like it. By the way, you know what God's penalty is when we say, I'm going to protect my sin rather than change? The penalty is God lets you have what you want. And that will surely destroy you. And so God, the law, the law comes and says, you shall not covet. Now notice verse 8, it's, st it's still in chapter 7. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. In other words, now every time I had a covetous thought, that popped into my head and said, thou shall not covet. Man, it makes me mad. I was so free from all of that. No one was reminding me of my sin. And now every time I sin, uh, it pops into my head and I'm miserable. I just, I don't like that at all. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Had, it didn't say anything to me. I didn't care. How many people are walking around in this world living in their sin, in terrible immorality, and injustice and all that they do, they don't care. It doesn't bother them at all. They don't have a conscience because the word of God has never come to them. The law of God saying, thou shalt not. No wonder we place the Ten Commandments in places of our courthouses across the country. And sinners say, we don't want those commandments here. We don't want any reminder of what we want to do. And so <laughs> he said, that I, uh, apart from the law, sin was dead. And notice verse 9. I was alive without the law. I was having a great time. I love my sin. I love my covetousness. I love my, my lust. I love my hatred. I, I loved it all. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and that killed me. 
I died. Conviction came to my heart. Oh, folks, never doubt that when you give the gospel to someone, and when you read those verses, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And that person rebuffs you and says, I don't want to hear this. Go away. Let me tell you, you have left with them an arrow that pierces them in the heart. And God wants you to do that. You need to do that. They need that, as Paul is, is giving his own testimony here. And, and then, uh, verse 10, the commandment which, which was to bring life, was only death. In other words, the law is not a law of, of uh, righteousness. It's the law of sin and death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. You know what the problem is? It's not the law. The problem is you. We heard this last hour. The problem is right here. The problem's in my heart. How could God dictate a law for the nation of Israel from Mount Sinai and it be anything but holy, just, and good? God dictated it. God gave it. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is no one can keep it. And so everyone is condemned. Has then what is good became death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become, notice, exceedingly sinful and a burden and a heartache and a, and a conviction to me. That's the problem. And so when we go back to verse 3 of, of chapter 8, and he says, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, what, what he means is the law was good, but it's your flesh that's weak, and you, and you can't keep the law, so you're condemned before God. Condemnation came to you. But notice how he completes the thought. What the law could not do, who did it? God did. We could just stop right there, couldn't we? What the law could not do in saving you, it, it couldn't go any farther than that, you know. That, that was the last thing that, that, that it can do is just condemn you, but what it could not do is save you. God did it. God did. And so the second thought here is not the weak law, but the precious Holy Spirit again uh, glorifies the Son, and we say what I call here the perfect Son. Notice this, God did by sending His own son from the Godhead, from the throne of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God did it by sending his son. That speaks of the deity of Christ. It speaks of the deity of the whole Godhead. Jesus Christ came to this earth as God the Son. He sent his son. You know, there are a couple of verses that often are pointed out as parallel. One is in Genesis chapter 22, where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him there for a sacrifice to me. Send your son. Take your son. And we know the story of how God protected him. That's the John 3.16 of the Old Testament because John 3.16 in the New Testament says, God so loved the world that he sent his own son. He gave his only begotten son. That was not just Isaac, that was the Son of God himself. And so God did it 
by sending his son, notice, in likeness. You see that word likeness of sinful flesh. Now, don't mistake what he's saying, of course. He's not at all saying that Jesus had sinful flesh. He's not saying that, that Jesus had sin, isn't he? But he is saying that Jesus became a man, that the second person of the Godhead, when God sent the Son, he became human at the conception of Mary. And, and so he was 100% divine, sent from the Godhead. He was 100% human because he came in flesh, but he was not sinful. How could that be? Every other human being is because he was virgin born, because he did not have that sinful uh, nature from Adam in him. And so he came in flesh that looked like everybody else's flesh, but it was sinless flesh. It was, sin, it was flesh that had no sin. And that's what he means when he says it was in the likeness. It was similar to it, but it was not sinful flesh. And what did he do then? Notice the last part of verse 3. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You know why he came? For sin, I think the old version has. He came for sin, meaning he came on account of sin. Or as somebody said, with sin in mind. He was born that he might die for your sins. He came that he might be our sacrifice and deliver us from condemnation. He came on account of or with sin in mind, and then he condemned sin in the flesh. You want to see, you want to see a beautiful verse, and I'll turn with you to Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, if you can, or I will read it, but these are great verses, and you'll remember them when you see them. Colossians 2, beginning in 13, and verse 13. Here's Paul talking about these very things, and we'll pick it up in verse 13 where he says, You, being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, okay, condemned. The law says that you're a sinner, but notice, he has made alive. Here's, here's the law uh, of righteousness. Here's the law of life. Together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now notice, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. What does that mean? Well, the law of Moses, the law of the Old Testament, is the handwriting of God, sometimes physically on tin table or on tables of stone, the handwriting of God that had requirements that said you must do this and you must do that. And what did our, our passage say here? That, that uh, in the next verse it's going to say that the righteous requirement of the law. And so it was a law of handwriting. It was a law of requirements. And in verse 14, it was the law that was against us. Back to chapter 7 again. You like covetousness? The law says, thou shalt not covet. And you say, I don't like that. You have lust in your heart, it says, don't lust. You have hatred, it says, don't hate. You like your idolatry, it says, you'll not have any idols before me. It constantly tells you and gives you these requirements. But notice now, still, Colossians 2 and verse 14. Which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. How can we describe this? 
Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. The sinless one, the one man in all the world that had no sin was nailed to the cross where you and I should be nailed. And why is that? Because he came to condemn the world and the world said, we don't like that and we don't want to hear what you have to say and we're going to nail you to the cross. But because he was sinless, he was the only sinless man, he fulfilled the law. The law never said anything to Jesus Christ that condemned him. Never did he have to uh, not like the law. He loved the law of God because he kept it. And it had nothing to say to him. So even though he gave his life, no man took it from him, he gave his life, death had no hold on him. Death is the penalty for our sin. He gave up his life for us, but it, it had nothing to say to him. And it could not hold him. And so after three days before even his body began to deteriorate, he came out of that grave victorious because the grave could not hold it. Had he not come out of that grave, folks, it would have shown that he was sin. And sin did have something on him. But the fact that he resurrected showed that he was sinless. And so he turned around, having fulfilled the law, and by the way, knowing that if you put yourself in him, you will be uncondemned by his righteousness. When you say, I will take you as my Savior, my covering, my justification, I'll put myself in you, then God looks at you through his Son, and you have no condemnation. And so he turns around and takes the law and its sin and nails it to the cross. And sin now is the one that dies. Sin and the law is the one that has to go because in Jesus Christ, we can have victory over sin. Isn't that a beautiful passage? I thought of that old song uh, this morning, Oh, what a Savior that he died for me. From condemnation he has set me free. He that believeth on the Son, saith he, hath everlasting life. We need to sing that song next week. What a, what a great thought that is, that we are set free. Our sin is condemned and nailed to the cross. Well, one more thought is in verse 4 of Romans chapter 8, and that thought in verse 4 is this, the requirement of life. Now, he says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirement of the law, I hope it's plain to you by now in chapter 7, verse 12, we read it. The law is holy, just, and good. The law never made a requirement of you that was evil. Everything the, the, the law, the Mosaic law required was good, holy, just. You're the problem. We could not keep it. All sinned and came short of the glory of God. Not only that, but, but what does James say? Whosoever shall keep the whole law and offend in one point, guilty of all. The, the rich young ruler, or, or I mean, the, yeah, the, the, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, all of these have I kept from my youth up. And Jesus said, well, let me give you one more. Sell everything that you have and follow me. He says, that I can't do. And he went away unjustified. You may be the best person this world has ever seen. You may be so good in so many areas, but you know you have one sin. As a matter of fact, you have many. The fact that you think you have only one probably is another one. But 
you are condemned before God according to the word of God because you must be perfect. And there's only one who is ever perfect. So the righteous requirement of the law, oh, but notice, is fulfilled in us. Really? Who is that? Who is the us? Well, we can go back to verse 1, right? Who are in Christ Jesus? We can go forward to verse 9. Who have the Spirit who are in the Spirit? In other words, this is written to you, believer. You can fulfill the law. Really? We can do that? Not that for your own salvation, but because Christ has fulfilled the law and you live in him and he lives in you. And remember, he has given you that law of flight. I know the law of gravity is still there. I know the law of sin and death still pulls on you, but there's no condemnation to you. And he's given you the ability to fly and you can walk, you can live in the spirit. So now notice the rest of verse 4. And by the way, it belongs here, not necessarily in verse 1, if you have a footnote in your Bible. Here's where it belongs. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And I might say, that's to be continued in the next verse, in the next few verses. That is, if you are born again, and if the righteousness of Christ lives in you, and the Holy Spirit has given you the, the, the ability, the law of flight, then you can live by the law. You can do those things. You can live righteously. You can walk in the Spirit, or you can walk in the flesh. You can, but there's no excuse since you can walk in the Spirit. You can live in the Spirit. You can fly, if it will. So suffice it at this point, since we'll continue this thought, especially in the next few verses, you notice the, uh, those who live according to the Spirit and do the things of the Spirit. We'll talk about that. But suffice it to say, as a believer, you do not have to submit to sin. That's what he wants you to know by the end of four verses. You've been set free. There is no condemnation. And you have the power of God and the Spirit in you, you can do those things. Though sometimes you may not, you can, and you can walk. It has no dominion over you. Remember chapter 6 and verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under law, but under grace. So one reminder as we finish our thoughts this morning, and let me read or remind you of of uh, John chapter 3, I, I mentioned uh, that conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, you can't tell from whence it cometh or whether it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The question is only this at this point in our study. Are you born of the Spirit? Are you born again? Not by water only, but by water and the Spirit, by water and the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you born again? If not, you're still under condemnation. You cannot walk in the Spirit. You cannot say no to the flesh. But if you are born again, you can, and this chapter will tell you 
how the Holy Spirit will enable you to do those things. I want you to stand with me now, if you will, as we come to the end of today's message and we go to the Lord in prayer. We'll sing a song of invitation, and as we sing it, we'll ask ourselves, how about me? Am I born again? Do I have the, the uh, Spirit residing within me? Do I have eternal life? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for your word that gives light. Thank you, Father, that, that you have delivered us. Oh, wretched man that we are, you delivered us from condemnation and set us free. And so, Father, I pray we would rejoice in that. We would be thankful for that. And, Father, maybe your children that are hearing this or other words from Scripture today are discouraged and under burdens and sin has overcome them and, and burdened them down. Father, I pray your children would find that they can walk, they can be free of those things by yielding and committing themselves to you. And so, Father, I pray you'd bless as we think about these things. Maybe there's someone that doesn't know Christ as Savior, never been born again, never crossed his or her mind, that they need to be saved and they'll see everything differently. I pray that that would happen to them today. Now, Father, work in our hearts and our minds and bless us in these ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Gordon's going to come and lead us in a song. Our invitation is always open as we sing and also after we close the service. So you respond in the way that the Lord is leading you to respond.